Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Warning, the following episode contains sensitive material. Film is an essential part of my everyday life. I studied it in college along with journalism and for a time reported on local film events and wrote reviews. Now, in addition to trying my hand at writing films, I program movies for a few festivals. You could say I was a little more than excited to talk about film and TV on this show. In episode one, you heard me say that my experiences watching Partition portrayed in the media left much to be desired. I have seen a handful of depictions. I'll discuss some of these examples with writers and filmmakers Shanti Takor and Fatima Asghar, both of whom also have their own work related to Partition. Before recording this podcast, I had only watched Gandhi, directed by Richard Attenborough, Viceroy's House, directed by Gurinder Chadha, The Entirety of the Crown, and one episode of Doctor Who. Since then, I have watched Garam Hava, which means Hot Winds, directed by M.S. Sathu, Kamosh Pani, or Silent Waters, directed by Sabia Sumar, and of course, Miss Marvel. Which one should you skip, and which one should you immediately explore? From iHeartRadio, I'm Neha Aziz, and this is Partition, a podcast that will take a closer look into this often forgotten part of history. Gandhi. 
Gandhi seems like an excellent place to start. It is your basic run-of-the-mill biopic that starts out with Gandhi as a young lawyer and how he then transforms into the benevolent leader we learned about in our textbooks. This film was made in 1982, and I think it's one that older generations tend to cling to because of how massive this film was in every aspect. The cast, the costumes, the production value, the sheer amount of extras. I'm sure at the time, the people of India and Pakistan felt like their struggles were being recognized by a global audience. In fact, when I asked an elder relative if he had any suggestions on what may be good examples to watch, he suggested Gandhi. This film is considered an epic, and movies like this don't really get made anymore. It won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Ben Kingsley for the titular role. It is also probably the most mainstream film related to partition in terms of availability and so-called prestige. My first viewing of this film I can say with the utmost confidence will be my last. I don't think this film was great to begin with, and I certainly don't think as time went on it aged particularly well. It was truly a struggle for me to get through it, not only because it was three hours long and felt like it, but the utter lack of nuance is painful. We don't really get a critical and honest portrait of Gandhi, but one that is more filled with hero worship than anything else. It is documented that Gandhi was a racist. An NPR article from 2019 states that in his early writings, Gandhi made comments that white people should be the dominant race, and black people are troublesome, very dirty, and live like animals. If a film is attempting to paint us a realistic portrait of a man, it must also include the parts of him that are flawed and unethical too. Now, we don't have the time in this podcast to dissect all that is wrong with the film Gandhi, but here are a few key points. Ben Kingsley's brown face was truly unacceptable. He may be half Indian, but that doesn't change the fact that his skin was made significantly darker with makeup. Gandhi was directed by a white British male. I know this film was a passion project for director Richard Attenborough, but when you have someone not from the affected community at the helm of a project of this magnitude, something will usually feel off. We get a finished product that is clean and glossy, instead of genuine and raw. We had the villainization of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, so much so that the film was actually banned in Pakistan upon its release. Instead of giving us an accurate glimpse into the complexities of independence, Attenborough, along with screenwriter John Briley, decided to create a good guys versus bad guys narrative. In reality, we know that every man involved had their own self-serving plan with how they wanted independence to play out, including Gandhi. If you're going to make a film with a 191-minute runtime, at the very least, attempt to make it more on the mark. The last thing I'll say is that Attenborough dedicated this film to Lord Mountbatten, the man who oversaw partition and is responsible for a good amount of the bloodshed. We see this declaration in the first minute of the film. That, more than anything else, should tell the audience what type of film we are about to embark on. It was Mountbatten's idea to hasten the original timeline for partition so the British wouldn't be held responsible for the fallout. I don't think any Indian or Pakistani would ever thank him for his service. Which brings me to The Crown. Let me preface this by saying, I love The Crown. I love period pieces and costume dramas. I worship Olivia Coleman. I love corgis. I even had a Twitter thread devoted to every corgi that appeared on the show. Not enough, if I'm being honest. 
The Crown tells the story of Queen Elizabeth II and how she ascended to the throne and the many political events that took place during her reign. I didn't watch the show for research at all, more so because we were sheltering in place in 2020 and it was on my watch list. However, that didn't stop me from noticing the extremely small allusion to partition in the pilot episode. While I know the purpose of the series is to showcase the royals and their lives, the British Raj was a major part of their empire, and the pilot episode takes place shortly after partition. In this scene, we see the wedding of Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. Winston Churchill makes a grandiose entrance with his wife and sees Mountbatten across the church and gives him a very sharp look. As they take their seats, Churchill whispers with much disdain to his wife, this whole thing is Mountbatten's triumph. He engineered it all, the man who gave away India. I remember watching this and being like, cool, that's a take, I guess. In contrast, another popular British show, Doctor Who, actually portrayed the story of partition with respect. The episode, Demons of the Punjab, aired in 2018 and was written by Vinay Patel. Now, I know absolutely nothing about Doctor Who or the science around it or what the police box does, but when I mentioned my work with this podcast to a few friends, they told me about the storyline from the 11th series, so I decided to give it a watch. Watching this one-hour episode completely out of context, I was pleasantly surprised. It managed to capture the emotion, confusion, and brutality of the situation well because it was told from the perspective of the people it directly affected. Supernatural elements aside, we follow a Hindu family and a Muslim family in the days leading up to a wedding where their children are set to marry. Tensions arise when the groom's brother and his nationalist beliefs clash with the community. The audience could feel the fear and the unknown future and safety of these characters. Best of all, I did not see any British characters, minus the characters who traveled with the Doctor. Journalist Christian Halub from Entertainment Weekly asked Patel the following question. Most Doctor Who time travel stories tend to focus specifically on English history and its great heroes, like Charles Dickens and Queen Victoria. But here, the focus is an event connected to England, but it also challenges English assumptions about their own history and their role in the world. Was that intentional? Patel responded with, A lot of Doctor Who history episodes are focused on these great figures like Queen Victoria or William Shakespeare. And I liked the idea of doing a story about people on the ground who are affected by a period of history but aren't really rich or famous or well-known enough where they can just shake it off a bit. Because the greatest tragedy of partition is that the people it affected were people who are not remembered or acknowledged, making them nobodies. To focus on them felt like a really exciting thing and an important thing to do, rather than focus on the Viceroy who would have been in charge at the time. I couldn't agree more. I met with filmmaker Shanti Takor to talk about some other films that depict partition. 
Shanti directed a deeply personal documentary about her father titled Terrible Children. She explores many different facets of his life, including partition. I discovered this movie when it was submitted to the 2022 Cleveland International Film Festival, where I was curating films. Since then, it has gone on to screen at numerous festivals around the world. So my father got a letter from his father, who was still in India, and he only opened the letter 20 years after his father's death. And he gave me this letter and said, maybe you can do something with this. So I read the letter and that was the beginning of a path to making my film Terrible Children over the next three years. And I really learned the challenges that he had, not just within his family, but living in India during the backdrop of partition, which really triggered him to want to leave India to come to California, where he eventually met my mother. And it's an unlikely love story between my father and my mother, who is from Denmark. And I learned the context for why my father's family banished my family when my father married a Danish woman. Shanti is another person who had to find out the story of 1947 herself, and I wanted to know what sources she looked into to find out more. Well, because my father never talked about partition, I knew I had to learn about it on my own. (laughs) So it was really literature where I was able to get like the heart and soul of the stories. Um, Two books I learned about were Cracking India by Bopsi Sidwa. Um, That's through the perspective of a Parsi woman living through partition. And Midnight's Children, of course, by Salman Rushdie. And what I loved about those books was there was an authenticity about the characters and the the day-to-day moments of living in this environment where people had to make very subtle choices which could lead to life or death. So literature really informed me. And then um, and then I saw a documentary, a four-part documentary. I believe it was from BBC or Channel 4. I can't remember. And it was a very, you know, it was a journalistic, you know, give me the date, give me the politician's name of what happened. And of course, I watched it because I wanted to learn as much about the politicians who were involved and so forth. But there was really something lacking. It seemed really one-dimensional around these kind of almost arbitrary conversations between politicians, but not like what was happening in the heart and soul of the people on the street. I asked her how she prepared to talk about partition in her documentary. So the first thing I did when I was preparing to make the film was I started to write the voiceover. I had to make sure all the facts were in place, but I also had to get to the emotional truth of the story, which was my father's story, which I was telling. I went to the National Archives to see what I could use for my film. And there were just incredible images that, um, you know, it's true that, that an image can tell you a thousand words. And I didn't know what was possible because I had to figure out how am I going to tell this story? How can I represent the unrepresentable about these stories if I don't have the footage, right? So. Um, There's a part in Partition where I found this footage in the National Archives. It was footage of a demonstration um, in India and where British soldiers were essentially beating Indians up, right? So 
I looked in the U.S. for footage, and then I also looked in the U.K. for footage. She discovered something that shocked her. What was so interesting was this particular section of, of footage, which was so important to tell the story. Of course, you want to see, like, here's the tension between the colonialists and the Indians, right? And then when I was looking at exactly the same footage from the UK, it had deleted, it had taken out the shots where the British soldiers were beating up the Indians. And it was so fascinating to think, well, this is supposed to be the, quote, objective history of a country that is saved in the archival footage. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And of course you think, well, what in America are we not showing this, our national history? But that's another conversation. But it, so it was very interesting to see how different countries represented their relationship to partition, as well as taking these epic stories and turning that into a micro event. I think as children of parents who went through partition and who won't talk about it, so much a part of our healing is to understand what happened on a micro level and a macro level. You know, how did this affect our family in ways that we have to investigate when they won't talk about it? Shanti then describes walking in the streets and neighborhood where her father witnessed violent attacks. So when I went to India to shoot the film, it was just myself and my cinematographer. And I met my cousin, who is my father's nephew, and he brought us through the neighborhood where my father experienced partition. It was an interesting neighborhood. Um, it was in Old Delhi. My father uh, ran away from home at 16 <laughs> to live with his grandmother. And she lived in this building that was just on the edge of the Muslim section in Old Delhi. And she ran an Ayurvedic business. She had her doors open to everyone. She was a healer, right? And so my father has this memory of waking up in the middle of the night to the sounds of slaughter. And that was Muslims passing through the street, unaware it was a Hindu neighborhood. And this is what he woke up to as a teenager. And it haunted him. When Terrible Children premiered in Cleveland, there was quite a few audience questions, mainly from older viewers. I really appreciate people's curiosity and willingness to learn. And whether they come from a South Asian background or a Jewish background or, you know, I mean, I, I just think that that reverberation of trauma translates on so many different levels. So if people have never heard of partition before, that's cool. Let's have a conversation and let's start to make observations and share these observations with each other about how this affects us and how this affects our families. Moreover, how do we survive it and how does it make us stronger? I wanted to know how Shanti's father felt about the 75th anniversary. Yeah, I brought it up to him and it was obviously something he was very uncomfortable about. But what I do see is that he is deeply, deeply affected by seeing what was happening in the Ukraine, seeing what was happening in Rwanda, seeing the same cycles of this belief of racial purity 
and ethnicity and how that destroys people. So he kind of sees these echoes of partition throughout his lifetime, which is really haunting. And I think that's something that everybody needs to listen to about partition because it is yet just another example of how history keeps repeating itself. You can learn more about future screenings and bookings for terrible children on Shanti's website, shantidecor.com. I thought Shanti would be a fun and interesting person to discuss the last three films on my list, so I asked her to watch them so we could talk about it. All of these films were directed by South Asians. Up first is Viceroy's House, which was released in 2017 and based on the books Freedom at Midnight by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre, and The Shadow of the Great Game, The Untold Story of Partition by Narendra Singh Sarila. Like Gandhi, this film was also banned in Pakistan due to its characterization of Jinnah. Viceroy's house follows Mountbatten and his family while he oversees the disillusionment of the British Raj in India. There is a Downton Abbey upstairs-downstairs-like way of storytelling, where you see the Indians, Muslims, and Sikhs serve Mountbatten's household as they talk amongst themselves about the issues going on as they overhear possible outcomes of partition. I felt filmmaker Gurinder Chadha's heart and intention were in the right place, but the general consensus for Shanti and I was that there was too much information being squeezed into the film. Both of us greatly admire Chadha's work, but here we get a Cliff's Notes version of events, fragments of stories that ultimately leave us with nothing. It's so interesting trying to judge films on a historic event. We're going to be looking at several different films that portray partition, but for me, the first question is, who is the audience? Whoever the writer-director is, they have to think about who the audience is, who's funding it, right? So, I mean, it's a viceroy's house. It's showing both the British and the South Asians, but it's pretty clear that the primary protagonists are the Mountbatten's. And we're following their narrative. We're following their point of view. And the secondary story is about, you know, Lord Mountbatten's Indian valet who's falling in love with a Muslim woman and the loss of his family during partition. But that's just structurally, in terms of the script, that's how it's created. And we're seeing, which I think is good, we're seeing both positive and negative characters in both the British and for the South Asian characters. But essentially, we are being asked to empathize with the Mountbatten's. This was another point of contention for me. Mountbatten was portrayed with an exuberant amount of sympathy. I have not read Freedom at Midnight. My father had read it when he was in school, and I did consider looking into it as a part of my research for this podcast. I had asked several historians and other academics about their thoughts, but this book wasn't held in very high regard because it's mostly a first-hand account from Mobatten. Combine this with the fact that Viceroy's House was in part produced by BBC Films and the British Film Institute, I can hazard a guess as to why his character isn't judged too harshly. 
But it would have been very different if the primary story was about this Hindu man falling in love with a Muslim woman, seeing what she had gone through in the refugee camp with her father, etc., etc. So, I mean, the structure of the story, I would imagine, I have not read the book that it's based on, but the writers and the director had to follow that particular story. So I don't want to ask a, a square to become a circle. It is what it is. But what was interesting was the scenes that were supposed to be so dramatic that was happening on Partition with the riots and the trains and, and the violence, it somehow did not fall to me as horrible as it actually was. Whereas when I see the suggestions of it in other films and how it's absorbed by the families on an intimate day-to-day -day level or moment-to-moment -moment level when we're invested in those characters, that's a whole other experience. So, you know, here in the Viceroy's house, it felt more just something to keep the plot moving. There were a few scenes that planted seeds for what was going to come with Partition, but they don't really grow in the way that is needed to showcase the gravity of the situation. When the filmmaker makes it very clear that this is a story about a Muslim patriarch and his family, like in Garm Hava or Silent Water, where it is a story about the matriarch of her family and her very problematic son. We are clear from the get-go, this is who we're following and we get their subjective point of view. Whether we agree with it or not, that's what it is. And I think with the Viceroy's house, we were getting his point of view, but there were just too many things going on. At the end of the film, there was a message where Chada, the director, notes her own partition story about her grandmother, who fled to present-day India and was reunited with her husband after a year and a half at a refugee camp. That is a story I would have liked to have seen. When you can put a face to an event like this, that to me is where the audience is going to really resonate and connect with the story and characters. I had the same reaction when I saw the kind of biographical summary of, of who she was as, as the director. I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to see the film that she would write from the beginning. That would be amazing. Unlike Gandhi and Viceroy's House, which can easily be found on a variety of platforms to stream, rent, or buy, that was not the case for Garam Hava or Silent Waters. I could not find either of them on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO Max, or the countless other streamers we have at our fingertips. For Silent Waters, I was able to find it streaming online on Canopy from my local public library, but different libraries have different content available. They luckily also had a DVD I could check out if I needed. When I looked for Garam Hava, the only copy I could find was a VHS at the UT Austin Library, where it certainly was not going to work. I miraculously ended up finding it on YouTube, but it is unclear if that was purely by chance or was vetted to be on the platform. It's no wonder many don't know about Partition or the tragic details. The widely available examples I came across give an incredibly condensed version of events. 
We live in a world where if something isn't available in an instant or at the push of a few buttons, we are less likely to seek it out. Accessibility is a big problem when it comes to finding more accurate depictions of partition and its lingering effects. Silent Waters takes place in 1979. We follow Aisha, a widow who survived the violence of partition, going about her life in a Pakistani village. She has a son, Selim, who is lost in more ways than one, and in the process of trying to figure out his future, gets swept up in extremism when some Islamic activists come to their village. Her son's new erratic behavior triggers a lot of painful and traumatic memories for Aisha. This film took the well-known European film festival Locarno by storm, taking home the awards for Best Film, Best Actress for Kiran Kerr, and Best Director for Sabia Sumar. Garam Hava takes place in 1949, as the Mirza family are trying to navigate their lives as Muslims in India, since they did not want to leave their ancestral home. The family struggles with discrimination within a changing political landscape. Since both films take place after partition and follow a specific family and the consequences they must endure from their choices and lack thereof, Shanti and I discuss these films mostly in conjunction with each other. Something that I felt was very distinctive in these movies is that we see the perspective of two Muslim families, and that was very deliberate. Loyalty being a major theme that overlaps. Before Pakistan, everyone was Indian, and in Garam Hava, we really see what identity the family prioritizes. They don't want to go to Pakistan. India is their home, and that doesn't change because of some man-made border. I think they're so interesting to watch side by side because Garam Hava, you know, it was made in 1973. It's an art film. It was credited with pioneering a new wave of art cinema movement in Hindi cinema. It was for a very specific audience and Silent Water is also an art film. So these are two films that assume the audience has some understanding of what partition was. So they don't have to go through the historic epic scenes. And so both of these films are so intimate by getting to know these characters, becoming invested in them, feeling what they feel, being concerned for them, and that's how it triggers our interest into what partition is if we're outsiders. We don't need to know the history lesson version of partition, but more so how people reacted to it how it changed their life, the ramifications, both positive and negative of their actions. That is how you get people to engage and care. Throwing a number of statistics without context isn't really going to mean much to people. It seems to be made like it's for folks who are already familiar with partition, but when it wins best film at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, clearly it is translating to an audience outside of the South Asian audience. So Silent Water, it was made in 2003. So now we're, we're seeing a woman character who has agency. In Garm Hava, yes. the women are quiet. They kind of mm -hmm. go along with what's happening with the family patriarch. I'm not going to judge a 1973 film with the 2022 lens. That's simply not mm -hmm. fair. But Silent Water, it was, what was so interesting was from the very first scene to the very last scene, we're watching this woman's choice with how she deals with her son, 
with how she teaches young girls the Quran. She's very inclusive in her teachings to her choice of talking to her son when he's dealing with Islamic extremists and is frighteningly taking their stance on things. We learned that Aisha used to be a Sikh in her former life. So when many Sikhs are granted permission to visit shrines in the village, she makes food for them. But their presence also makes her recall memories from her past. To her choice of giving food to the visiting Sikhs. And these are quiet, very simple, very profound gestures. She's not calling arms to anything, but these are the areas where she has agency and she can make a difference. And once we see the film and we know and we understand that it was her choice to not jump in the well with the other Sikh women, that was her choice to live. And then when we learn what her choice is at the end of the film, which I won't give away, again, it's her choice. But this time, her choice is affected by how the whole village and her family treated her. It is a story about how a woman is using her agency in an incredibly oppressive situation. We talk about Aisha's son, Salim. We see similar situations play out not only in film and TV and literature, but in real life. So many lost boys and men are susceptible to radicalization and race superiority. The U.S., for example, is home to many of these people. I was really taken by the portrayal of the son and how he was lost. He was underemployed. He was undereducated. He was hopeless. That's an awful feeling. And that is a timeless stateless, nationless existence, right? Like, in other words, it doesn't matter where you are in the world or what century or what decade you're in. That's a constant, that you're going to have people in the population who are undereducated, underemployed, feeling powerless. And in so many different countries, we're seeing, like, those are the guys who will join whatever extremist group and you can, I'm, I'm not just going to say it's, you know, in this case, it happened to be an extremist Islamic. In this country, it may be a white supremacist. So the film was about what was happening in 1979. But the beauty of this kind of storytelling is it becomes universal. Yes. And it is this kind of warning of like, this doesn't just happen in this country in 1979. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it right now. And that's the yes. beauty of a film that's beautifully told. In Garam Hava, we see two brothers of a multi-generational family, Salim and Halim. Salim owns the family shoe business, and Halim is a political community leader who is the first of the family to move to Pakistan. This was a story that was so smartly told. You have these two brothers, one who is a very well-respected businessman, who is the main character, and the other who is He's a kind of religious leader in the community, but also an opportunist. And so it's really the businessman who sticks around and who has this unwavering optimism to stay. And I found it so interesting. There was a quote in the film that was said by his brother 
which was there's something stronger than religion, bribery. So day to day, you're seeing how this family is disintegrating before your eyes. And it's all the more heartbreaking because this father, the patriarch of the family, is a man who holds such dignity and kindness and compassion for those around him. Because the majority of the Mirza family stay in India, they see their lives crumble around them. They do not hold the same stature in the community. They are treated very differently by people who are once their friends and their neighbors. Their business deteriorates immensely. Multiple acquaintances tell them to move to Pakistan, that they would have a better life. But the Mirzas are steadfast in their decision to stay. Again, I think it's the specific in the story that becomes so universal. Like, we know what racism is in the Western world, but when we see it there, the day-to-day humiliations, it is crushing to watch this wonderful person have to bear this load of, like, not getting a bank load, difficulty finding a house to rent, watching his family one by one leave for Pakistan until we actually see, a, you know, something being thrown at him in the street. And it's just, it's, it's so hard to watch. Again, I think similar to Silent Waters, we're watching a character make choices, day-to-day choices, and those are the choices that define who they are and their morals and their way that they're going to survive. That fits for them, not how the country tells them what they should do. This is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information, so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. 
Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you, because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. I knew without question when Miss Marvel came out on Disney Plus that I was going to watch it. I'm very behind in the MCU, but I had to watch this show with a Muslim superhero. Kamala Khan is an ordinary girl living in New Jersey with her Pakistani family when one day she gets superpowers like the heroes she's always looked up to. I had absolutely no idea that Partition was going to be a major storyline in the series. Thanks to this show and its creative team, so many more people in the West know about Partition. Here to talk more about bringing these stories to life is writer and filmmaker Fatima Askar, who wrote the fifth episode in the series, called Time and Again, and serves as a co-producer on the show. Fatima uses she, they pronouns. All six episodes of Miss Marvel are streaming on Disney+. Fatima's latest work, a novel called When We Were Sisters, will be released on October 18th, and the book is currently on the National Book Awards long list for fiction. But before we had our conversation about Miss Marvel, I talked to Fatima about their collection of poems published in 2018, If They Come For Us. The book features several poems about partition. I actually hadn't really seen partition in media at all. And um, it was kind of mostly through the stories of my family that I pieced together and figured out were about partition. I was like, wait, what is this event? Like, what is this thing that happened? And it was really then that I was like, oh, okay, like, I want to learn more about it. And so as I was writing If They Come For Us, and this was like before it was even an idea that it was going to be a book, I was writing poems that were about partition. And it was really through, you know, the writing of those poems and and wanting to do more research that I really started to look into that. So it was, it really came about because I was very hungry for information and I was looking at it. And that's kind of how I found out so much about partition. That was when I was really in deep research mode for partition. And it was very clear to me as I was writing If They Come For Us. And there were so many ethical questions I was up against. There's so many things that I considered as I was writing that book and especially as I was writing the partition poems and I did an incredible amount of research in order to write that book. The next year, they got a phone call. There was a moment in 2019 when Marvel called me in to have a meeting with them and they didn't tell me what it was, but they were just like, hey, we would like to meet with you. And I just kind of thought it was like a regular meeting. And I remember I I got to Marvel in my head, I was like, I wonder if they would ever do like Miss Marvel as a series. Like it was so, it was 2019, like it was just so different. Um, and I didn't, I just didn't think it was on their radar, especially because it had been such few years under publishing, like she had just come out. And so I was like, 
I think I'm just gonna ask them in my meeting, like, oh, if you, what, what, would you ever do something with that? And then the executive who brought me in, we were like walking around and then she swiped in for a conference room that was just gonna be me and her. We walked in, as soon as she shut the door, she's like, I'm here to talk to you about Miss Marvel. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I don't need to bring it up, you're gonna bring it up. And then um, that started off a very intense period for me where I was, I just started to work for Marvel. I was incredibly curious how showrunner Bisha K. Ali infused partition with Miss Marvel and asked how the idea came about. Fatima explains. When we all started to work in the, the writer's room, you know, she had a, an idea and a vision, um, but there wasn't a pilot script yet. And we were all kind of really working on what would this show look like. And it was really beautiful how she ran the room because it was very... Um, there was a kind of egalitarian quality to it or equal um, quality where it was like everybody just was really able to contribute a lot of ideas. And um, she was a really good facilitator of that. And so it was just really beautiful to work with that creative team for um, the months that I worked there. There wasn't a mandate from Marvel that was like, these are the storylines. It was done through Fish's vision and through the writers in the writer's room. And so very early on into the process, I actually talked a lot about partition. I kind of gave a like a lecture to the writers' room about partition, and everybody was like, "We would really, really like to include this in the series," you know. And I think that that was something that Bisha had wanted um, before, you know. And it was something that I felt like also was really important. All the South Asian Muslim writers in the room felt like was really, really important. And so um, that was kind of how that came, and it really came from the writers in that room really wanting that and then really fighting to have Partition be a centerpiece of the show. They went into more detail on how Partition was going to be represented on the screen. You know, in terms of getting into the mindset, it's also getting into the characters. Like, it's a very character-driven story. And um, there were things that, you know, even just considerations around, like, knowing that it was going to be on Marvel, knowing that it was going to be on Disney, knowing that we were going to do these things, what were we anchoring in? And it was very important for me that we not anchor, and I think all the writers in the room and Bisha, that we not anchor in like trauma porn and that this wasn't just like, look how bad this thing was or look how bad we had it. But what we did was we anchored in a love story and we anchored in the love between these two characters. And we were able to say, look at this as the backdrop of what we've seen. And I think for most people in the West, I don't know that they've really seen images of partition. I think that like, that is not a thing that folks have a visual reference point for. And so, you know, it was very important to me that that story be around and centered around a train because of the symbolism, the imagery symbolism of the trains and partition. And I think it was very important for a Western audience to see that visually and to say, wow, this is what this looked like. You know, you read a number and you don't compute the number, but this is what this looked like. And I think that that was very important. With each episode of Miss Marvel, I would get more emotional because so many parts of the show I can wholeheartedly relate to on many levels. There is one specific scene in episode four where Kamala travels to Karachi and she's having a conversation with her grandma. Her grandmother tells her, my passport is Pakistan, but my roots are in India. And in between all of this, there is a border, a border marked by blood and pain. People are claiming their identity 
based on an idea some old Englishmen had when they were fleeing the country. These few sentences hold so many truths. In previous episodes, we talked about the difficulty of going back to India and Pakistan and how these borders are soul-crushing for the people who are in some ways trapped. What I've seen is people be like, I did not know that you could get that on Marvel. Like the fact that you guys did that, the fact that you pushed forward and fought and got that on Marvel is huge. And I think I've heard that from South Asian people, but I've heard that from people who are not South Asian, but who are like the fact that you could include like this deep historical component on a major superhero franchise like show is is pretty wild. And um, I was like, yeah, I think so. And, you know, there's just things that I saw like Bisha had sent me like there was like a little bit of a like a Google search history um, for you can kind of like see the Google metrics and stuff. After episode four, the search results for partition like skyrocketed. Like people were Googling like what is the partition of India and Pakistan. And so to literally be like, wow, we like changed the Google algorithm is pretty huge. And, you know, I think also I saw a lot of people and a lot of South Asian people on Twitter being like, I've never asked my family about our partition history. Like I've never asked about this and now I'm going to go ask and then people were sharing their stories and to do something like that like to have a moment like that in popular culture where you're like you know I I grew up never seeing South Asian people on TV like I you know it was like I think all of us did where it was like there is no South Asian people and if we have them they're gas station owners or they're doctors or they're terrorists or they're the repressed Muslim woman. Like, there's really no nuanced representation of South Asian people. This right here is proof of how powerful the visual medium can be. Representation is important, but it needs to be accurate. Show multiple types of groups instead of showing stereotypes. Fatima mentions a study that came out recently about Muslim representation by the Pillars Fund, an organization that champions Muslim voices. There was just a statistic that Pillars issued that was like 1% of characters on TV are Muslim and 25% of the world's population is Muslim. And it's really disheartening when you occupy those bodies and you occupy those identities to say like, damn, like really? Like you can't fathom my existence? Like you can't fathom that someone like me exists with a rich, complicated history, with rich, complicated identities. And I think that what I saw from the show overall was people responding to being like, I feel seen, you know? Fatima has the hope that with the success of the show, more stories about Muslims by Muslims can be made. They kind of are like a punch in the ceiling. Like they allow for more things to happen because people then have a reference point to be able to say like, well, look at the success of this. Like, look at what they did. Like, look at how people felt seen now we can make more content that's like this, or we can make content that's different. But but because this show exists, it allows for more freedom. Like, I think one thing too about representation is that when you're so underrepresented, that any time that you have a character that is of Muslim or South Asian descent, they kind of have to be like perfect, quote unquote, because then you're like, but then everyone's going to say that Muslim people are bad, or it's going to be this representational burden. And it's like, Well, some Muslim people are selfish. Like, some Muslim people are 
assholes. Like some Muslim people are whatever, just like everyone is. And I think that when you kind of have the first one to really go, then what you allow for is people to get into more nuanced conversations about what does the slice of life version look like for Muslim people? What does it mean for Muslim people to have complicated identities where they're not good or bad, but where they're just human and they get to exist in this kind of complicated existence? And I think that um, when you have shows like this, it really becomes a blueprint or a openness for more things to be created in the aftermath of it. Unfortunately, Disney Plus is not available in Pakistan, but Miss Marvel was released theatrically there with six episodes being screened two at a time. How special for Muslim kids to finally see themselves as a superhero on the big screen. The India and Pakistan borders are discussed or alluded to in some capacity in every single episode on this show. Next time, I speak to Dr. Antara Dato, a lecturer on international relations, to further break down this topic with me from an historical perspective. Whether the border is open or closed, as you rightly said, is often a question of geopolitics. It's, you know, down to who's in power, who's not in power. There was at one point a bus that went to Lahore. There was a train that went to Dhaka. Right, So there's this kind of bus diplomacy. There are trains on the eastern side of the border. And then every so often something happens like the Kargil War and these are shut down. You know, so there are moments in which diplomacy opens up these borders and moments in which the borders are closed. Until next week, I'm Neha Aziz, and this is Partition. Partition was developed as a part of the Next Up initiative created by Anna Hosnier, Joelle Monique, and Yesenia Median. Partition is produced by Anna Hosnier, Trisha Mukherjee, and Becca Ramos. It is edited by Rory Gagan with original score composed by Mark Hadley. This is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Doc Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. 
Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.